We return this morning to our study in the Gospel according to John. And you will remember that Jesus and his disciples are slowly walking uh, the moonlit streets of Jerusalem, headed for the city gates, making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where, unbeknownst to the disciples, Jesus will be arrested by a contingent of the temple guard, led by Judas Iscariot uh, to that place. Uh, The disciples have been hearing of the advantage that will soon be theirs, provided that Jesus goes away, returns to the Father, for if he goes away, he promises to send to them another helper, the Holy Spirit. And perhaps as they come to the gates of the city, the Lord pauses for a moment, He lifts his eyes towards heaven and offers the words that we find in our text for today, chapter 17 of uh, John's Gospel. It is a prayer that has come to be identified as the Lord's high priestly prayer. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along now as I read from God's holy and inspired word. After this, Jesus, or after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. One of the things that we... Christians frequently say to one another is, I will be praying for you. Those words shared with us when we are facing difficulty are not a meaningless throwaway line to us, but are comforting, for we know that another believer has just pledged that they will be bringing our situation before God's throne and seeking to intercede on our behalf. In the same way that the friends of the lame man, when they could not reach Jesus because the crowd around the house he was in was too great to bring a a gurney through, climbed to the roof of that house and made a hole and then lowered the man into the room. So wonderful is it when Christian friends help us to carry our concerns before the Lord and intercede for us in prayer. But imagine that the one who says to us, I will be praying for you, is the Lord himself. Imagine how comforting it would be to know that the very Son of God, who left his home in glory and was enfleshed in order that he might dwell among us and reveal to us the very heart and character of God. Imagine that he is the one who speaks to us and says, I will be praying for you. Would that not be a far more superior thing? The Apostle John in this 17th chapter of his gospel reveals to us just such a prayer that Jesus uttered on the final night of his earthly life. It was a prayer offered on behalf of his disciples, but not only on behalf of the eleven, but also on our behalf. Scripture is not replete with The words of Jesus' prayers, we find with some frequency that the Lord spent a great deal of time in prayer. We find many references to the fact that he went off to isolated places in order to spend time in communion with his heavenly Father, but we don't have the words of those prayers recorded anywhere. In fact, the prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples when they asked him to teach them how to pray. And in that sense, it might be better to call that the Apostles' Prayer. 
But here in John 17, we have a prayer that the Lord offered just before his passion would commence. And it is truly the Lord's prayer. Father, the hour has come. In reading this, you almost get a sense that there is a heaviness in the Lord's voice, a a sense of dread for what is about to occur. Think about a soldier minutes away from deployment, standing on the tarmac, giving final assurances to his or her family, offering final hugs and kisses, and then the word comes that it is time to board the cargo plane, and everyone is filled with an anxious dread. In the Lord's case, the mission that he was dispatched to accomplish was our redemption. That redemption required a perfect obedience to the Father in all things throughout his entire life. And up until now, Jesus has achieved all those things. But there is this one final task that is the climax to all the rest. It is the one great thing that he most assuredly must do, and yet it is also the thing that will test him beyond all measure. But he also knows that in this final act of atoning work, there awaits glory. Glory for him, glory for the Father, and a glory that he will one day share with all those who belong to him. This is a glory that the divine Son of God knows because it is a part of him. It's a glory that was briefly revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a glory that he says he had with the Father before the world even existed. This glory is about to be revealed in the cross. And the hour has come for that glory to be made manifest. Up until now, what has been made manifest is the name of the Lord. Jesus indicates that he has accomplished this by imparting the Father's words to those whom the Father gave to the Son. In other words, this handful of disciples who have spent the past three years or so with Jesus listening to his preaching and teaching, ruminating over his answers to tough questions, pondering his more difficult words, and seeking clarification later, all of this has been to prepare them for the task that is yet ahead. Jesus says in his prayer, Father, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, I would submit to you that this morning that this is a key aspect to the Christian life. That is, receiving the word of Christ and believing that it is the truth because it has come from the one and only mediator between God and man. Where people begin to lose their way in life is when they begin to call into question the veracity of the Word of God. Now, I'm not talking about people who have questions about Scripture and they're asking their questions so that they might have a proper understanding of them. I'm talking about people who call Scripture into question because they doubt its authenticity as the very Word of God. Jesus is affirming here that these disciples 
have accepted that he is God's Messiah and that the words that he has passed on to them are the very words of God. And this is why their own writings garnered an acceptance as being authoritative for the early church, for the church understood that these apostles were passing along the truth that Christ himself had imparted to them. It is no wonder that the disciples preached with such boldness and conviction following the resurrection, for that event confirmed and underscored not only the veracity of the word of God that Jesus had imparted to them, but also the power resident within those words. When any disciple becomes convinced that he or she has received the very word of God, that disciple becomes a bastion of truth in the world. I know I have shared with you before the video that someone posted online some months back that was taken in a house church in China. And these Christian brothers and sisters were praying together in anticipation of a great gift that they were about to receive. Some good Samaritan somewhere in the world had sent to them a case of Bibles, and one by one they approached this box, and with tears in their eyes they retrieved their very own copy of the Scriptures translated into their language. And they gripped them as though someone had just gifted them with 20 pounds of gold. But I have no doubt that if someone were to offer them 20 pounds of gold in trade, that they would not take it. So precious had God's word come to be for them. The means by which God's word has come to you and to me and to those Chinese believers and to anyone else in the world is through the instruments of the first apostles who were so possessed by the word of God that they could not remain silent and they could not refrain from communicating to one and all what Christ had himself given to them. Even in the face of tremendous trial and tribulation, even under horrible persecution and threat of death, these apostles refused to remain silent. They made known wherever they went the truth of God's word. They reproved and corrected and taught and trained up other disciples, equipping them so that they too could go and make more disciples through the proclamation of God's word. And it is largely through the ministration of God's word that we are kept safely in the Father's name. Now notice that this is Jesus' prayer for the disciples. Holy Father, keep them in your name and sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So when we neglect the regular ministration of God's word, by failing to read it on our own on a regular basis or by shunning Bible studies where learned disciples are teaching or by neglecting to gather in weekly worship with other believers in a church where the scriptures are rightly proclaimed, we are willfully choosing to be ignorant and that lack of spiritual discipline can expose us to spiritual danger. What sustains us in times of trial and tribulation, is the word of God. What comforts us in times of sorrow and disappointment 
is the Word of God. What increases our joy and satisfaction in life is the Word of God. What provides us with wisdom in times of confusion is the Word of God. What sanctifies us and transforms us into the image of Christ is the Word of God. And yet, if we were to put the average churchgoer on jeopardy with nothing but Bible trivia questions, I'm afraid they would embarrass themselves and their Savior for their lack of knowledge. And it is this lack of biblical knowledge that threatens to undo us, for it is only by means of God's Word that we can hope to survive this world. And by survive, I mean skillfully dodge or endure the many attacks that the world will mount against Christ's people, the church. Jesus has been telling the disciples that they are not of the world, but rather they have been chosen out of the world. And that truth applies to every disciple of Christ. It's true that we are in the world, but it's also true that we are not a part of it. The world has an agenda that is 180 degrees removed from the aims of Christ and his church. The aims of the world and the aims of Christ are so far removed from one another that Jesus' prayer for us is that we not be seduced by the world and that we be guarded in the Father's name. Jesus knows that the only security that is truly secure is when we are safely kept in the Father's name. The problem the church has is when it seeks to establish some kind of a truce with the world so that the world will not hate it. We see this all the time when the word of God is compromised so that the world won't take offense by something in it. It's probably been about three years ago now that there was a headline in the religious news of a mainline minister in Maine who engaged in a blessing ceremony for a planned parenthood clinic, one of the leading purveyors of abortion. And even though these death clinics are the most insidious institutions on the face of the planet, this minister applauded the clinic for its, and I quote, life-affirming values. Friends, when evil is called good and good is called evil, you will indeed establish peace with the world but you will not find yourself at peace with God. And Jesus' prayer for us is not that we be at peace in the world. His prayer is just the opposite. Just before he began his prayer, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've over- overcome the world. So Jesus knows that there will be trouble coming our way from the world. His intercession is not that we escape that trouble, but rather that the Father sustain us in the midst of it. His prayer is that we endure the slings and arrows of this world and that the Father keep us from falling into the clutches of the evil one. And his answer to all of this trouble is that the Father sanctify us in the truth. That is to say that we become more and more holy or more and more set aside for the purposes of God through our exposure to the truth of his word. 
The peace that Jesus offers to us is not the kind of peace that the world offers, but rather it gives to us his peace. This is a peace that even in the midst of great storms and times of societal calamity enable us to remain calm and faithful knowing that the sovereign Lord of the universe is the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven making intercession for us. But more than that, even when we ourselves do not know how to pray, Christ has given to us his own spirit who Paul says intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And when the Spirit prays for us, he prays for the saints according to the will of God. Christ's prayer of intercession for us includes a petition at the end of it that is actually connected to the beginning of his prayer. As he began the prayer, he prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then a little later, he prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then at the end, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, meaning his disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, we spoke a few weeks ago about the glory that is to be revealed in the cross and that in the minds of most of us, this is kind of counterintuitive. We see the ugliness of the cross, the hideous profanity of Golgotha, as D.A. Carson describes it. And we struggle to understand how glory is revealed there. But as we said several weeks ago, it is in the cross where God's perfect justice is put on display simultaneous with God's perfect loving kindness and grace working out our pardon without God violating any aspect of his holy character. And in this, the glory of the Godhead is revealed for it speaks to us of the covenant of redemption that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had prior to the creation of the world. But the glory that the Son has in mind here is that divine glory that throughout biblical history has necessarily been mitigated. Moses wanted to see the glory of God in all of its fullness, but was denied for his own safety. All he received was a shielded glimpse of it. The prophet Isaiah was petrified when he caught a glimpse of God's glory and holiness as God was high and lifted up, seated upon his throne, and the prophet thought he was about to be consumed, for in that moment he understood his own wretchedness. And Peter, James, and John were treated to a brief glimpse of the sun's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they immediately wanted to stay right there with Jesus in his glorified state, But that was not going to be possible, for there was a greater glory still. And for that to be revealed would require Calvary. But we learn in this prayer that Jesus yearns for a return to that pre-creation glory, for it will mean that the work of redemption will have been accomplished perfectly and that he will be seated at the Father's right hand, reigning over all that he has made. But when Jesus prays that he wants us to be with him in order that we may see him 
in all of his glory. We need to understand that here is a prayer that Jesus is constantly offering on our behalf, praying for our perseverance in the face of all trial and temptation, asking the Father to preserve us until the very end so that we might be with him, so that we might be able to see him in all of his glory. What a great privilege awaits us. The brief encounter that Peter, James, and John had will be the eternal encounter that all the saints will have one day. John will later record in the revelation of Christ to him describing the new Jerusalem, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. None of us is able to stare directly at the sun, nor should we, for our eyes are incapable of absorbing the strength of those rays. And yet the day is coming when we will look into the face of God in all the fullness of His glory. For through the atoning work of Christ, we have been made able, we have been made righteous. And this is Jesus' prayer for us, that we be enabled to see Him as He is. For that to happen means that we have come to Him in humble reliance upon all that He has done for us through His life and death and resurrection and ascension. We will see Him face to face by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. I trust that you have surrendered yourself to him. If not, then let me encourage you to come and do so even now as we bow before him in prayer. Would you please pray with me?